0: If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them with me to the book of Hebrews. If I were to ask you, at what point in your life were you the most tired that you had ever been, what would you say that would be? When in your life have you craved rest more than ever? For me, I can remember two moments in my life where I never wanted a nap more. Uh, One was a Bible study retreat that I went on a few years ago, where my friends and I thought it would be a good idea to not sleep. Um, So we went to the sanctuary, and we played games, played music, talked, did anything we could to stop ourselves from falling asleep. Um, I remember when we got back, I went to a friend's house, and I was falling asleep sitting in a chair. I ended up going home and slept for 16 hours. Um, Another was my grad night, senior year. Uh, We went to Disneyland from morning till about 3 a.m. We didn't get home close till 5 a.m., and then I had to get up a couple hours later to go help do audio at my church. Um, It was the only time that I had to fight falling asleep during a sermon. I did not succeed. Um, But what about you? When were you the most tired you had been? I'm sure most of the parents in the room would say those early stages of parenthood. Those first days, weeks, months of having a new baby at home. Willing to do anything just to get a few hours of rest, a few hours of sleep. Being brought to the brink of emotional and physical exhaustion. Maybe it was just a a really intense work week. Late nights, early mornings counting the hours of sleep that you would get if you fell asleep at a particular moment. Maybe it was just an emotionally draining week. Having nothing left in the tank after a certain trial or season in your life. When in your life have you just wanted a break? A moment away from everything and an opportunity to just disconnect from what life has thrown at you. Well, for the audience of the book of Hebrews, I'm sure they would have said, at the moment this book was written. Um, the passage we're in today, Hebrews 4, through 13, is a passage I'm sure many of us know. I'm sure many of you have it memorized, but it doesn't quite have the same impact if we don't understand the context around it. And I'm sure all of you remember from my Hebrew sermon a year and a half ago, these people were struggling They were faced with persecution, and it was persecution that, in their minds, was making them count the cost of whether it was worth it to follow Christ. And the author of Hebrews is writing a letter to these people, begging them and pleading them to stay in Christ. He starts in Hebrews 1 with a long sentence proclaiming the worthiness of Christ. He then goes on in the rest of chapter 1 to prove his point that Jesus is worthy over the angels citing multiple psalms and Old Testament passages proclaiming Jesus' supremacy. He goes on in chapter 2 to continue proving that point while also adding warnings against the neglection of ignoring the, the message of Christ. In chapter 3, he begins to prove his point that Jesus is better than Moses. Moses. Not not by minimizing the work of Moses, but by magnifying the work of Jesus. And then in chapter 7, or I'm sorry, verse 7 of chapter 3, he starts to paint a picture. And it's a picture that he starts here in chapter 3, and he continues all the way until the end of chapter 4. And that's a picture of rest. And he uses the Israelites in the wilderness to paint that picture of rest. He quotes Psalm 95, talking about the sad conclusion of that generation that was unable to enter the rest that was designed for them. Because as we see in verse 12, an evil, unbelieving heart. And in verse 19 of chapter 3, it tells us that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But then in chapter 4, the author starts to make a pivot he stops talking about the temporal physical rest on this earth that was given to the Israelites and he starts talking about the eternal rest. And it's a rest that is given as a result of the completion of the works that we have been assigned on this earth. All right, we see in verse nine of chapter four that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I also think it's it's worth noting that God calls it His rest. It's not our rest, it's God's rest that He gives to us, that He allows us to share with Him. And so that leads us into our text today. The author of Hebrews is challenging and exhorting and admonishing his audience to strive for that rest to not forfeit that rest because of their disobedience and unbelief. And while he's doing that, he's challenging us, charging us to be diligent to enter that rest. And like we say here, what God commands, he gives the grace to live out. And so we will see the means that God has given us to allow us to ensure ourselves that we will be able to enter that rest is his word. And his word has three inherent qualities, three inherent natures that will allow us to enter that eternal rest of God. So read with me Hebrews 4, 11 through 13. The author writes, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account." Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you. I ask you for your blessing in our time this morning. Lord, I pray that your word will pierce our hearts. Lord, that you will show us the unbelief and the disobedience that lies within us, Lord, and that you will pull that out. Lord, that you would expose it to us and that we would be able to deal with it rightly. Lord, I pray that you prepare our hearts. Lord, use me as a vessel to speak your truth and your word to your people. We pray your blessing on our time today. Amen. So verse 12 begins by telling us that the word of God is living and active. Now, while our English Bibles start verse 12 with, for the word of God, that's not how the original Greek starts this sentence. In Greek, when you want to emphasize something, you put it at the beginning of the sentence. And the word that's at the beginning of the sentence isn't for, isn't the word of God. It's living or alive. If we were to read this literally, it would be living for the word of God is. It's as if Yoda wrote this verse, right? The first adjective that the the author wants us to see of the word of God is it is living. It is alive. I, I know it's hard for us to picture a book that's alive. Whenever I picture any writing that's alive, I picture that letter from Harry Potter that talks to Ron and like, scolds him for stealing the car, right? But that's not what this is getting at. It doesn't literally speak to us. The Bible is just a reflection of the very nature of God. God is a God that gives life and that produces life. And that is reflected in the word that he has spoken to us. The author wants us to know that this spoken word of God, it's not dead. It's not ineffectual. It's not irrelevant, it has life in it and it gives life. Jesus tells us this himself in John six sixty It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. If we don't have the words of God, There is no hope for life since, as Jesus tells us here, his words are life. They are alive. There is an inherent life-giving quality that the words of God possess that can enable us and allow us to enter that rest of God. Just like Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.23, Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. We have been saved through the living word of God. We cannot be saved apart from the word of God. And the word of God is alive, but that's not where the author stops, right? Because you can have life and have the ability to give life, but not give life. And so that's why the author adds another word to describe the dynamic nature of the word, and that's the adjective active. It's not only living, it's not only alive, but it's active. And the the Greek word for active here is where we get the word energy or energetic. The word doesn't stand still. It's not static, it's not inert. It has a, a, a purpose and it accomplishes the purpose. There is nothing that I can do, that you can do, or anybody can do that will stop the word from accomplishing the purpose that God has set out for it to do. God tells us us this in Isaiah, where he says, So my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the very thing for which I sent it. The word of God accomplishes its purpose. Another word that we could use for active is effective. The word of God is effective. It doesn't lose its power or its vigor. Right? Jesus tells us that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words shall never pass away. In Isaiah, he tells us that the grass wither and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If there's one thing that we can rely on, it is the very words of God. Because the very words of God reflect the nature of God. And so the reality is, if you listen to the word of God, it will have an impact on your life. It doesn't matter if you're 12 or 112. There is no age limit on the effectiveness of the word of God. And that I think about all the ministries that exist in church today that are specifically designed to minister to certain age groups. There's children's ministry all the way from birth to high school. There's college ministries, working adult ministries, couples ministries, single ministries, which I'm very familiar with. The goal of churches is to get everyone exposed to the life-changing word of God, the life-giving word of God. But what, what does that look like practically? What is the practical outworking of the word of God? Well, as believers, we are all personal witnesses to the effectiveness of the word of God, aren't we? Whether it's your life or the life of somebody close to you, we've all seen the effects of the word in somebody's life. A commentator said, we didn't come to Christ because of a persuasive argument, although that may have been present. It wasn't scientific evidence that made you realize there was a God and that you must submit to him. If you are a true Christian, you have been transformed by the very living and active word of God that is in your lap, or God forbid, on your phone. Right? The, the rest that God promised us that he has given to us isn't ours because we went out and sought it. It's not ours because we saw the value of the word. We were granted the future gift of rest despite our apathy towards the word. So I want you to think about how you became saved, you personally, Christian. Whether it was a moment that you can pinpoint or not. Whether it was... Last week, last month, last year, or 20 years ago. Regardless of how you became saved or when you became saved, there was a point where the effectualness of the weird word pierced your hearts and made you realize who you are. Made you realize the kind of savior you need. You didn't add anything to the word. The word did the work within you. When Martin Luther was asked about the reformation, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. I did nothing. The word did it all. We are saved despite ourselves, not because of ourselves. No person naturally comes to salvation. It's not a natural thing for a soul to be saved. The salvation of a human soul and the granting of rest is a supernatural occurrence made possible only by the liveliness and the activity of the word. But in order for us to come to salvation, the word needs to pierce our hearts. And the word of God is able to do that, yes, because of its dynamic nature, point one, our dynamic nature, but also because of our second point, its divisive nature. We see in the middle of verse 12 says the word of god is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit joints and marrow we can't be given life unless the word penetrates our hearts and is planted within us there needs to be something that is done inside the heart of a person in order for them to strive to enter the rest that we are called to strive after. We are not able to enter the rest of God without the divisive work of the word. And this isn't the only place that the Bible's compared to a sword. Uh, in Ephesians, the Bible's compared to a sword uh, called the sword of the spirit. But this is a little bit different than that because the sword of the, of the spirit is a weapon that we yield to defend ourselves against the schemes of the devil. Right? This, this is different because in Ephesians, we are the one yielding the sword. Here, the sword is being used against us. The, the, it's, yes, a sword, but there's a very important adjective that the author puts in there. Right? It's not just a sword, a double-edged sword, which is one of the most dangerous weapons that they had at that time. Right? It was yielded by soldiers by knights, someone that wanted a versatile and dangerous weapon. Uh, It was a weapon that was designed to cut and penetrate at every contact point with every movement, right? That's what a double-edged sword was meant for. It was meant to cut, to penetrate. The Bible is compared to a sword, yes, but it's sharper than any double-edged sword. Right, No sword, no sword forged, no weapon forged can compare to the ability of the word to pierce into the subject which it's being thrust into. Nothing compares. Yes, this word gives life, but there is a sharpness to the word of God that is dangerous. It's lethal. It's fatal. It should put things into perspective because when you have a sword aimed at your chest... You're not thinking of anything else other than what that sword can do to you. Right? You're not thinking of anything else except what could possibly happen if that sword decides to make its way towards me. The Word of God is life threatening, it's frightening. The author is comparing the Word of God to a weapon that was used to kill everybody it came across. There's also another aspect of the divisive word of God. Yes, it's dangerous, but it's precise. It's accurate. It's so accurate that it pierces soul and spirit. It pierces joints and marrow. The word knows just where to go. It knows just how to divide whoever is hearing it. There's a scalpel-like quality that the word possesses. It's not messy, it's not gory, it's precise. It's so precise that it separates two things that we often think are the same thing, right? I don't naturally think of soul and spirit as two separate things. Uh, I I read a lot of commentaries that that use this verse to talk about the human condition the dichotomy or the trichotomy of the human condition, right? Whether we are three parts, soul, spirit, and body, or two parts, just body and and, uh, soul, immaterial and material. I, I don't think that's what the author is trying to do here. He's not trying to give us a psychology lesson. He's not trying to give us an anatomy lesson or a physiology lesson. He's merely showing us the precision with which the word of God cuts. It cuts to the deepest parts of you. It cuts to the very core of who we are. There is nothing that is going to get in the way of the double-edged sword that is the word. There's no place that's off limits to the word of God. There's nowhere that you can go that will keep your being unveiled or hidden. Do we see this as a good thing? When you think of the lethality of the word, the dangerousness of the word, what goes through your head? Are you you scared of what the word would reveal? Do you welcome what the word would reveal? And I'm not talking about the sin that we all know is there and that we are all comfortable uh, confessing. I'm talking about that deep rooted sin That sin that you don't dare tell anybody is there because you are afraid of how they might react. The sin that hides in your heart and that you hope never gets out, that is never revealed. What is your reaction when the word pokes that kind of sin? I know my my reaction, my my reaction is to kind of push it aside, just say everybody struggles with sin. I'm not the only one. Right, Which is true, sure, but that's not the, the reaction that that word is trying to elicit. It's trying to show you the depravity that is within you. The need for a savior that is within you. A pastor said, we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security and to undermine our complacency and to overthrow our patterns of thought And behavior. So I want us to ask ourselves, do we position our hearts in a way where we welcome the word of God to divide us? What happens if we don't? What happens when we try to hide our heart from the effects of the word that it can have on our hearts? I think we have a great example, right? The author of Hebrews gives us a great example right the israelites look at the israelites they heard the very word of god from moses who spent time with god and what did god have to say about those people if you look at chapter 3 verse 7 he quotes psalm 95 where god is talking about the israelites he says they shall not enter my rest. A heart that hides itself from the word is a heart that will not enter the rest of God unless God interacts and intercedes. In the 18th century, there was a, a group of people that were known for attacking George Whitfield and his teachings and his preachings. And one time there was a guy named Thorpe who was mocking and mimicking one of Whitfield's sermons. He was um, mimicking his tone, copying his mannerisms. And in the middle of his reenactment, Thorpe was convicted because he was finally listening to the words that he was saying. He was reenacting the very words that George Whitfield was preaching And he himself was convicted because he finally, somehow, through the the grace of God, the word pierced his heart. It divided his soul and his spirit, and it showed him his sinfulness. And it says that he turned to Christ on the spot. He started weeping in the middle of his little play and gave his life to Christ. Right, But we, we shouldn't rely on something like that to turn us to Christ, right? We shouldn't rely on the pride of human beings to be the thing that drives us to God. Now we have the opportunity to position our own hearts so that we will not go astray like the Israelites. We have the opportunity to humble ourselves before God so that we welcome the divisive nature of the word in our life. And through that divisive nature, through the dividing of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, we might enter God's rest. But there still needs to be something else done, right? There needs to be more than just the divisive nature and the dynamic nature. There needs to be some, our hearts need to be evaluated. And that is our third characteristic of the word of God. It has a dynamic nature. It has a divisive nature and it has an evaluative nature. Look at Hebrews 4.12, the end of 4.12. The word discerns the thoughts and the attentions of the heart. In verse 13, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The word of God, yes, it actively gives us life through the division of our innermost being, but it also evaluates our hearts and the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. In verse 12, there's there's three couplets, right? Three pairs that we see. Soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and thoughts and intentions. And all three couplets are very closely related, right? Soul, spirit, joints, marrow, Thoughts and intentions, and the word judges or exposes or critiques. The word there for discerning or judges is where we get the word critique or critic, right? And to critique or to criticize doesn't mean merely to point out what is wrong. It doesn't only uh, mean to point out the negative things. It means to to give a diagnostic report of the condition of whatever it is you are discerning or exposing or judging or critiquing. If I were to give you a golf lesson, which Jeremiah has been subject to, I would examine your swing, right? I would see you hit multiple balls. I I would examine every part of it, right? I would study your swing. Then I would give you a list of things I see. I would tell you what I see. And it wouldn't just be, this is why you suck. It would be, this is what you're doing well. Keep doing this. This is, what's, this is helpful. Make sure that this is a foundational part of what your swing needs to look like. But then I would also say what you need to work on. Right? This isn't helpful. This is not good. This is detrimental to what you want your swing to be. And that, that, That's what the word of God does to our heart. It assesses our heart. It assesses the, the state of our heart, where there is something profitable and where there is faith present. Because you have to remember that this was written to a group of believers. Yes, they were struggling believers, but they were believers nonetheless, right? And they had the Holy Spirit working within, uh, within them, and so they had profitable components of their heart, right? Their evaluation of their heart wouldn't have come back all red. Right, There is some faith present. And so I, I want us to, to realize this passage is supposed to be encouraging. Right? It's supposed to be happy, joyful, because they are hearing that they have the means which, which they need to enter the rest of God. That, that is good news. Right? But in order to enjoy the good news, we need to know that there is bad news. Right? And so the word is able to discern both the thoughts and intentions. Our innermost thoughts and the motives which why, which, 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 with which why we think them. Right? It's, the word is able to evaluate it all. We are not able to escape that evaluation, just like we are not able to escape the division of the word. Our thoughts, again, those, those feelings that we feel that we hope nobody ever knows, those are the very thoughts that the word of God goes after. And there's nothing that we can do, nowhere we can go to escape the examination that the word of God will carry out. It evaluates who you are. And the word that the author of Hebrew uses to encapsulate all of that, your heart, the core of who you are. Your very being is being put under the microscope and it will see every sinful stain, every wretched motive, every wretched feeling, every thought. It is subject to examination. We are in the courtroom of God, where God is the judge, you are the defendant, the word is the prosecutor, and your heart is on the witness stand, and it is just pouring out all the evidence that is needed to lock you up in hell forever. There is no other witness needed to condemn you. Your heart is plenty because the evaluation that the word will take out on your heart is comprehensive. There is nothing left in the tank when the word is done with your heart. That's what verse 13 tells us. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. We are so exposed and so inwardly searched that it says that we are naked before him. I don't know about you, but in high school, I had a frequent dream that I would show up to school with nothing but my boxers. I don't know if that's a normal thing, but I would be in my dream and everything would be normal until people start to laugh at me. And then in a split second, I realized I'm not wearing any pants. And it was the most embarrassing thing because I felt defenseless. There was nothing I could do to cover myself. Nowhere I could run that there wasn't somebody there looking at me. Right? That, it, there's a sense of embarrassment that comes with nakedness. A sense of shame. Being on display. Think about Adam and Eve. Right? Once they sinned. Their nakedness and their shame was revealed to them. And their sin and their shame drove them to flee from God. And it's ironic that trying to become like God, their actions drove them to flee from him. But we're not only naked, we are exposed. And the word for exposed here is the root word is where we get the word trachea or neck. Neck. It has connotations of when a priest would expose the neck of an animal to slit it for sacrifice, or for a wrestler when he takes the neck of his opponent. The the author is trying to paint a picture of no escape. There is no covering offered when we come into contact with the word. And that's a good thing, right? Because then it's all out there. It's all exposed. It can all be dealt with. And you have two options to deal with it there or to ignore it, right? And we have been given access to a savior that offers to cover it for us because we have no means of covering it ourselves. Or we could try to cover it ourselves, only for it to be exposed later on, right? Because like it says in verse 13, we will stand before him. We will have to give an account to him. The very author of the word that this passage is talking about will have that comprehensive evaluation and will deal accordingly. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or good. Or evil. First Corinthians four five says the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation from God. The one that you will give a defense to is the one that knows you better than you know your, uh, better than you know yourself, who knows your depravity even better than you do and he still offers a way of covering us still offers a way to rest so the word of God is dynamic it's divisive and it's evaluative so what how is this helpful to us because it, it, I think it would be natural to read this passage and come away discouraged and helpless, knowing that the dynamic word is pointed at our chest without a way out, knowing that the sword will pierce our hearts, it will divide, and it will evaluate us. Again, there's nothing we can do to stop the word from the work with which God has ordered it to do. It will evaluate whether our heart is one that believes and obeys or whether it is one that does not believe and, as a result, disobeys. The Israelites' disobedience and their unbelief fueled their rebellion. And we see their their sad fate. They died in the wilderness, never knowing the rest of God. And the same danger that they faced is the same danger that the Hebrews faced. Brothers and sisters, it is the same danger that you and I face. Now, some of you might bring up the, the sovereignty of God and the perseverance of the saints, and amen and amen. I think the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews would agree with that. But I, I would also want to say, I don't think that the Hebrews who apostatized went into Christianity thinking they were going to apostatize. Because you have to think about their decision that they had to make in the first place wasn't one without consequences. I don't think they joined the church thinking that they were going to fall away from the church. I don't think they went in being ostracized from their communities, from their families, from the synagogue, thinking it's okay because if this doesn't work out, I'll just bow out. I I don't think they had a backup plan in case this whole Christianity thing didn't work out. I truly believe that they were all in when they first joined. They were in it for the long haul. But persecution came. Temptation came. One little area of compromise, one little area of disbelief or disobedience, it led into another and led into another to the point where some of them abandoned the faith altogether the danger of falling to that same type of disobedience and unbelief is a danger that I pray no Christian overlooks. That no Christian thinks that they are incapable of falling. That we are incapable of forfeiting that rest. That we would forsake God for the the pleasures of sin. I mean, it it happens all too often, right? Where we see a pastor or somebody that we would call a super Christian fall to the lies that sin promises us. Right? uh, One of my favorite pastors said, "A tree doesn't suddenly rot, right? It It doesn't happen overnight, and often you can't see it." What lies are we prone to believe? Where are we prone to fall? Because it is our nature, right? Just like we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And I pray that it would be our prayer. What comes next, right? Take my heart and seal it. Seal it for that courts above. But we are still responsible for our own hearts and what we do and the and the, the lies that we believe, right? That's on us. So what lies are we naturally drawn to? Maybe it's the lie that true satisfaction is found in status or money, security, in a husband, in wife, or in kids, in control, in personal pleasure. What, what is it? What Fill in the blank. What in your heart Do you feel a natural inclination to go grab, to go get? We've been studying idols of the heart here in small groups. And it's been such an enlightening study to just show how prone we are to abandon the God that we love. And how we need each other, how we need the word to correct us, to remind us of the God that we ought to serve. The reality is, as long as you are on this earth, you are capable of falling. And so that is why the author is begging us to strive after that rest. A rest where we will never have to worry about the danger of falling. A rest of completion, a rest of contentment, and a rest of satisfaction. That is what is being offered to us. But if we are to enter that rest, we need to be diligent to the end, to not let our God down. And that is why we need this word. This word that is alive, that is active, that is sharper than any double-edged sword, that penetrates, that divides, that leaves us naked and exposed before the one whom we must give an account. John Piper said, "The Christian life is a life, a vigilant use of the Word of God." So, when you are able to rest, when your baby finally starts to sleep through the nights, and you are able to sleep for more than two hours at a time, when work finally starts to slow down, and you feel like you can take a breath when God finally brings you out of a trial and you can relax, enjoy that, enjoy it. But I pray that we realize that any rest that we enjoy here on earth is merely a picture, right? It wasn't meant to satisfy. It wasn't meant to give us that fulfilled feeling that we've all strived to get because that earthly rest will only be temporary, All right, Another trial will come. Another busy work week is ahead. But we know that when we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the rest of your master. We know that we have entered the Sabbath rest that was designed for the people of God, and we know that we did nothing to earn it, that we did nothing to deserve it, that it was given to us as a gift, not because of any merit that we did or any work that we performed, but it is the gift of God that he graciously bestowed on us so that we know he is God, So let us strive to enter that rest. And using the word to correct us whenever we seem to stray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I come before you and I ask for your blessing. Lord, we thank you that your word has these three natures, Lord, that it is divisive, it is dynamic, and it is evaluative. All that we need in order to enter the eternal rest is found in these pages of scripture. Lord, we pray that you will use this word to pierce our hearts, to open our eyes to the reality of who you are, of who we are, why we need you. So Lord, I pray today that we will fix our eyes on you. Lord, that we would know that it is only because of the work of Christ that we can enter your rest. So Lord, I pray for your blessing on our time today.